and welcome to another episode of the SASMA podcast. Today we are honored and privileged to have Associate Professor Jiren Swart with us. So Jiren is a sports and exercise physician based at uh, the University of Cape Town and the Sports Science Institute of South Africa, where he's currently the head of division of sports and exercise medicine. Jiren is a clinician researcher that wears many hats, often all at the same time. So I've asked him to just give us a brief introduction as to what he's doing, the number of bodies that he's sort of affiliated to at the moment. So yeah, Jiren. Thanks, Jeanette. It's great to be on the podcast. And just let me say also thank you for all the podcasts that you've been putting out. It's great to see what all of our colleagues are doing and, and everybody gets to at least to get some knowledge of, of what the others are up to. So in, yeah, in my own space, as you pointed out, I, I'm currently the head of division for sport and exercise medicine here at the University of Cape Town. And, and that involves clinical teaching. So we have an MPhil program in sport and exercise medicine, and we're actually now in the process of implementing the first ever MMed program in sport and exercise medicine, which will hopefully kick off if we get everything right at the, in 2025. So that'll be our first registrar program in sport and exercise medicine, which is a huge step in South African sport and exercise medicine uh, landscape. And as part of that, I also do a lot of research. My research focus is... I'm quite diverse in my research. I'm not, a lot of researchers are, are what we call hedgehogs. They, they get deeper and deeper into the hedge and know more and more about less and less. I tend to do what my mentor, Tim Noakes, did, and that is be like a fox and rove around and gather information on all different kinds of topics. So I have a diverse group of interests. My PhD was in basic neuroscience on the mechanisms that underpin fatigue and endurance sport. I've done a, a reasonable volume of research in cycling biomechanics, lately mostly cycling physiology, so more pure physiology and performance-based research in cycling. And then there's injury research in, in high school sports, in, in, in various different disciplines of sport, and so on. So it's, it's quite diverse, and that's I'm fascinated by research, and, and that takes up a good deal of my time. And then we have a thriving clinical practice. We have moment i think the largest privately run sport and exercise medicine clinic in the world we have 10 full-time sports physicians we look after uae team emirates all of their medical requirements western province rugby all the way from under 19 to, to up to stormers rugby the two oceans marathon cape Town spurs football club so we've got a great medical practice which has grown and, and we started that in 2015 and you've been part of that growth so you were with us for a number of years until you that's gone and plowed your own fields. Um, that's been, it's really been a, a great thing to build that together with the other people in the practice. And so that's a good part of my life. And then also at the moment, the performance director for UAE Team Emirates. I started as the medical director, but I just eventually got bored of doing COVID tests and just and asked them if I could please move over to performance. I've been involved in performance since 2003. I was Olympic coach in 2012 in, in London for cycling for South Africa and, and so it fit and so I've been very happy there in the performance department and that also takes up a fair amount of my time. Mm. So those are the main things that I'm involved in and then a few others, anti-doping uh, research as well as activities and so forth. So uh, there's lots going on but all fun stuff that I'm doing there. And you were the medical director when UAE won the Twitter France in to 2021, eh? Correct, yeah. 
and then it now moved on. Since then, I haven't won it. I'm not sure. Weird, eh? <laughs> but no, it was two fantastic years. I mean, it came very quickly. I started with a team. They approached me in July 2018, and I was already involved with activities in October 2018, and then the first full season in 2019. And we rapidly went from 17th in the world rankings to end of 2019, we were fourth in the world rankings. 2020, we ended the season second, but we're briefly number one team in the world, and we won the Tour de France. We won it again in 2021, and we now, although we didn't win the Tour de France, we are well ahead in terms of the point standing of the number one team in the world. So, and the number of victories has gone up from in the teams to now. We last year we won, I think, 48 uh, races, mm-hmm. and I think we were well on track to win many more than that this year. It's a steady progression in the same direction. Which is, uh, and you guys uh, have four doctors from the practice. Yes, correct. At the moment, four of our, our doctors from our practice here are part of the medical team, including Adrian Machuna, who took over from me as the medical director. And so that so we have a strong South African footprint in the medical team. And then we have John Wakefield, who's part of our performance team, and he's now moved over to Bora hans so there's been a strong South African presence in the staff at UAE from 2019 till now. And that still continues as well with our doctors and myself on the performance side. Yeah, that's awesome. And just, just some context for the listeners. Like Jaren said, I was part of the practice in, I started my input in 2016. Mm. And Jaren's been a, quite a key mentor of mine from 2016 when I started in sports and medicine. Also one of my supervisors on my info. And yeah, eventually got my info completed. So yeah, based on that as well, Jiren, thanks so much for just being available and giving up your time for this for this recording. Obviously, we ended up a bit on cycling. What is your what's your background in cycling? As in what what got you into more cycling related research? It's been a long journey, which started actually when I was in my teens. I I, I was a fifteen hundred meter runner. But I was, had a group of friends who were very involved in cycling, road racing, and then eventually into mountain biking. And I was primarily a runner, and I ended up being in a very strong age group. We included Ethel Sapeng, Joshua, Joshua Peterson, uh, Johan Boerta, uh, guys who all went on to win Olympic medals, world championships, set world records. And I had this view that I was going to go to the Olympics, and I lived and breathed 1,500-meter running. And then when I was in grade 11, my left knee started to hurt and I, I got progressively more knee pain. And back then I went to Richard von Bormann's father, who was then practicing in Johannesburg at the Samson Medi Clinic. He diagnosed me with a bipartite patella. And I've had, subsequent to that, they just didn't settle down. I ended up with really severe anterior knee pain. And that actually it's probably the thing that piqued my interest in sports medicine. So my own experience has been a big driver of my focus in terms of my work. Which so we often I, say as well, that often helps us as sports musicians to really understand our athletes. And yeah, yeah. The, the experience is definitely mm-hmm. a, a big a plus in terms of understanding the athletes mm-hmm. and their, their, their drives and motivation. Yeah. So I eventually stopped running. And then I, because my friends were also, and I had been fighting while I was running, but never really competitively i moved over to the competitive cycling and while i was studying medicine i got progressively better and better and eventually in my final year of medicine i was in the top three nationally i did my internship and and then i decided to just give it a full tilt and quit medicine for a couple of years for a space of time two years 
and and raced full time, raced internationally on the mountain bike circuit. I, I was national champion in two thousand, but national internationally, I was never in the top twenty, which is where you needed to be to make a living out of a sport and to really have a presence mm. in the sport. So after two years, I realized I'm not going to go there. It's never going to get to that level. I think I peaked at uh, 71st in the world ranking. It's not high enough. So I quit racing professionally, and I came here to the Sports Science Institute, and I started my PhD first, so purely physiology-based research degree, and Tim was my supervisor. And then while I was here, I was exposed to sport and exercise medicine, and then enrolled at the same time as doing my PhD in sports medicine. And then completed both of those. And I've been here ever since 2002. So it's about 20 years that I've been here at the Sports Science Institute, first as a PhD student, and then in the practice with Martin Thomas and Wayne Derman, and then as a first as an honorary researcher, and then eventually as a full-time academic, and, and now as head of the division of Sports Science. Now bringing through all the young budding sports physicians yeah, through the UST program. It's great to to be able to provide a platform that, that, that was always the challenge with sport and exercise medicine. It wasn't a, a, a clearly defined career path and a platform that could be utilized to really give new people a, the opportunities that, and the experience that they needed to gain their clinical expertise and become specialists in the field. We always kind of put bits and pieces and kind of cobble together a career Whereas now we can really offer people full-time sport and exercise and career pathways and in the, in the near future, registrar folks as well. Yeah, I think that's always been a, a challenge within sports medicine is just making a career off it. We say that your more traditional specialities have a road. or was a bit of a cheap track farm road, but you just sort of, there's no real road. You sort of try and make your own way through. Yeah, it's quite nice with the SEM program becoming more formal. Yeah. But I think... Some of the younger guys coming through will actually have a more. And you were involved right in that sort of transition mm. phase, so you've seen the changes. Changes, and probably when youngsters come through in the coming years, you'll be able to tell them it wasn't always the straightforward and easy. Back in our day, back in our <laughs> day, we had to make it work, and you had to hustle and get mm. stuff done. And, and so, it's nice to see that happen. Yeah, but it's been great being part of that process, and you have as well. So. Mm. No, definitely. And you spoke a bit about your PhD, so that was focused more on the central governor. Mm. Uh, can you just briefly, like, what, what again, to our listeners, what would the central governor concept be? So the central governor was a, a concept that Tim, and, and there were a number of parallel research sort of ideas at the time, in the late 80s, early 90s, really, which tried to understand what really happened during exercise in terms of, of what ultimately resulted in people not being able to produce performances that they wanted and what really underpinned performance in endurance sports. And the prevailing hypothesis back then was that it was all cardiovascular, respiratory, metabolic, and that really the VO2 max sort of proponents and that those processes were ultimately the, the, the means by which your exercise performance was determined. And just some simple observation and, and, and like you said having been an athlete and having understood what happens in a race when you decide that you can't perform with whoever's riding away from you gives you an understanding that allows you to ask questions and the central governor model really rung true and that is that you know when whether you do a VO2 max test in the lab 
or whether you're out in the field and you're busy in the, in the front of a race and suddenly you're unable to stay with another athlete, whether it's a runner or a cyclist, your legs don't suddenly stop working. You make a conscious decision, I can no longer keep this up. And you make a conscious decision to slow down. And that conscious decision happens before anything in your body fails. So the central governor is basically a model that basically talks about the regulation at a higher level, the brain, in other words, that regulates exercise performance, still within the constraints of a physi physiological model. So you still have, if you have bigger lungs, a bigger heart, better metabolism, you're going to go faster for longer. But ultimately, when you stop going fast, it's a conscious decision to do that. And what were the mechanisms that were responsible for that? So Ross Tucker at the time and myself took this model forward and explored how these mechanisms work. And it's really quite a, a, an interplay between different sensations that you have. And, and really, to make it very brief, when you decide to run a marathon, your prior experience determines how you'll start and what speed you'll start at. Then while you're running, you'll constantly be receiving signals from various different organs, your skin and your skin temperature, if it's a hot day, and from your muscles at various different homeostats. And those will generate a physical sensation, a perception of what Paul originally had as his perception of effort. The perception of effort has actually, and this is part of my PhD, we tweaked out that there are two different components of that. There is the physical sensation that you have, breathlessness, pain, and so on. And then you have something which is actually distinct, which is the sense of effort. And the sense of effort is a much more, it's a sensation, but it's not linked tightly to the physical sensation. And it is very much based on your knowledge of how far you're supposed to go, how much you've done, how certain you are about the end coming up. And if you, your body, your brain uses a sense of effort to tell your consciousness to slow down. And so you have this interplay between your will and so the motivation is one that drives you to go forward and your sense of effort is the handbrake that's trying to slow you down. And the interplay between those two ultimately determines whether you decide to speed up, stay the same speed, or slow down or to give up altogether. And so... If you are in a novel course and you don't know whether or not around the next bend, whether there's a steep hill or a downhill or a flat, and if you, for instance, are racing into a, have a tailwind and you don't know if that's going to turn into a headwind, those sorts of things, those uncertainties, increase your sense of effort because your body's trying to maintain a reserve to prevent the possibility of you running out of resources before you complete the task. That's a protective mechanism. And so that knowledge and certainty are factors that are protected. And that's often, I mean, I've worked at the ocean's tent, I think, two or three years, and that's often why you get those collapses over the finish line. Again, that's one of those perceptual cues that you get into the finish line. People push through their central governor, and when they get to the end, they just... Well, I mean, most of those collapses are orthostatic hypertension because the muscle pump mechanism is not, but some people push themselves and are able to continue exercise until past the finish line. And then when that drive is gone, then suddenly they are overwhelmed by the sense of fatigue and, and, and want mm. to lie down. So, and, and that's why we see world records being set at the Olympics. 
points is because the motivation at an Olympic Games is so much higher because of the prestige and the status associated with an Olympic medal. So that motivation is a, is a big factor that drives them forward. And this will probably link to that paper that you did in 2010, one of your more, more cited papers, mm-hmm. the Tunicate Cycling Time Trial. Yes, so that was with Dominic Nicolai. We did a series of studies at that time, and, and my PhD did two trials as well. I mean, one of the most profound ones is we used amphetamines. So Romain Meuse and, and, and Bart Roulance were doing some studies with amphetamines as well. The propion is a substance they used and we used metalphenidate, which is ritalin, but we gave them a, 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 a solid dose. And what happened was when we put people in the lab and we gave them amphetamine, they cycled for 32% longer at a 17% higher power output. And the physiological there was nothing physiological underpinning. It was purely that the amphetamine gave them drive and motivation to continue when otherwise they would have stopped. And what sort of dose was the... We had 30, 30 milligrams of methaphenidate. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a solid it's dose. A dose. And um, so, and Bart Rulans, for instance, they gave these subjects to propion and they put them in a heat chamber. So 30... Six degrees Celsius, ninety percent humidity, and they made them do a forty-kilometer time trial, and they measured rectal temperature or core temperature. And I remember he, at one of the conferences, Bart was telling me that they had guys with temperatures of 41, 41 and a half degrees Celsius core temperatures, where most people would basically stop deadly, and that he would walk into the chamber and, and ask the subject, "How are you feeling after having given them amphetamines?" And they would say, "Fantastic! I'm having the, the best." Time trial of my life, and they felt great. And that's because those amphetamines give you the drive, but they also override many of those physical sensations, and that way, what we call afferent feedback, and the afferent feedback mechanism prohibited, which is why amphetamines are so dangerous. In terms mm-hmm. of Tommy Simpson died on Mont Blanc two, and back then, the cyclists were consuming 50, 7,500 milligrams of, of, of amphetamines before a stage, during a stage, and, and they used that because it was performance enhancing. But the downside was that it completely obliterated their ability to sense the thermal stress. And on that day, it was, I think it was 50 degrees down in the valley. And, uh, and Tom Simpson effectively um, developed additional heat stroke, probably. It was never clear exactly what the cause of death was, but I mean, from the description, it sounds like additional heat stroke, probably because he overrode his thermal regulatory mechanisms by taking amphetamine. But that's the power of mind. So, so it, it, in effect, the, the brain controls your physical ability, and and there's normally a, a reserve that you can actually override that reserve to to the detriment of the individual. Mm. And that's why it's there. And I think that was a good illustration as to why stimulants are prohibited in sport. Yeah, absolutely, because it overrides our natural. Yeah, so, definitely. And that is one of the wider stipulations in terms of whether a product. Uh, must be prohibited. One is if it's performance enhancing, and the other one is if it's danger to the sport and stimulants of a danger to the individual and stimulants of a. Yeah, definitely. And uh, again, just on cycling, you did a case report with then the two times Tour de France in a swim, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, so we, do, we did a case, we did a study on Jan Ulrich back in 2006, and we did a, okay. a lab study on Chris Froome in 2015. So, so both of them. And tell us a little bit about that. I mean, just the process of that, of testing. I mean, the cyclists we know just have extreme VO2 maxes. They can, from an endurance point of view, they're, just, they're almost in a class of their own. Yeah, um, so, so, so in both of those, we didn't publish this physiological characteristics of Jan Ulrich, but Jan was widely considered to be 
a guy who would go on to win seven Tour de France's or at least five and, and hopefully beat uh, Eddie Merckx's record. And in the end, he didn't. And one of the main reasons he didn't is because he developed a persistent knee injury. And he had an operation on his knee. He missed a couple of Tour de France's and his knee problem kept on hampering. And he came to us, because he used to train in South Africa in Cape Town quite regularly. And he came to us with his physiotherapist at the time, David Cromer, and his manager, Rudy Pervenage, and asked us if there was anything that we could do to help him with his knee pain. And what we did is we did a complete battery of tests on him. We scanned his knee with an MRI, we brought him into the laboratory, we did a bunch of biomechanical assessments on him, including an, uh, an analysis of his pedaling action and pedal right balance. And we looked at different cadences, and he was notorious for riding at a very low cadence. And what we finally found out was it was simply the low cadence that was causing his knee pain. And there were, it was not a biomechanical factor. And what we did is we recommended that he rode at a very high cadence to reduce the forces, and he did exactly that. There's also a reason why he was always carrying excess muscle mass. So he was literally doing Grinding resistance hot. training yeah. on every bike ride, and he had gained at least five kilograms from off his Tour de France win. And he was always much heavier, even though he did a Texas scan on his body fat percentage which was high, he was over 80 kilograms. For a Tour de France potential winner, it was way too heavy. And so we got him to really just spin, spin. He lost seven or eight kilograms that year from the time we saw him. His knee pain completely disappeared. And he was absolutely fine. He won the final time trial in Giro d'Italia. And in fact, Ross and I, were supposed to be embedded with the team that got to Tour de France. Ross flew over to France. I flew over to France. And then Operation Puerto happened. And a whole bunch of many riders, including Jan Ulrich, were excluded from that US Tour de France because of the Operation Puerto incident. We lost the opportunity to add further value to, to, to Jan's career. What was the Operation Puerto incident? Uh, so Operation Puerto was basically an, under, an investigation and in Spain, and they managed to uncover records to one of the Fuentes who was then assisting athletes in blood doping, which is removing their own blood and then using that blood. And they linked that to many athletes in many different sporting codes at the time. So it was a very big event in anti-doping and many athletes were excluded from sport as a result of that. So that put an end to that. And then the other one is 2015. So I mean, I met Chris Froome after he won the Vuelta and Chris went to school in St. John's in Johannesburg and always had a kind of presence in South Africa. He's further home back in, in South Africa back then. And, and Chris and I were on the super cycling show together. I had a regular segment on the super cycling show. And, and so we were backstage and we just struck up a conversation and, and exchanged numbers and, and stayed in touch. And over the years, Chris and I ended up uh, communicating at, at times when he had injuries, he contacted me and asked me for advice. And so on. And then in 2015, he asked me if I would do the physiological testing on him. So I flew over to London. Where we decided it was after the Vuelta, after the tour, and there wasn't enough time between the tour and the Vuelta for him to come to South Africa to our lab here in Cape Town. So, and there was no equivalent lab in, in Monaco. So we eventually identified that in Smithkline Laboratory in London, that they had all the equipment we needed. And so he flew in from Monaco, I flew in from Cape Town, fresh off the airplane, red eye went to the lab and we spent the entire day doing a whole battery of physiological tests on him. And was there a reason that sort of he requested the... Yeah, so it was interesting. His wins and the fact that he had been relatively obscure before he, he became a welter champion prompted a lot of people to question his physiological attributes. And 
And I was quite vocal on social media at the time, just because I'd analysed the data and the numbers and, and said, look, these are well within normal. I guess he's probably going to be a max in the 80s. And, and that is, there have been many athletes described with VO2 maxes in the 80s and 90s. And all of these numbers are, are compatible. People were saying it's extra terrestrial, this is not human, the efforts that he's doing. But the, the efforts that he was doing in the races were, as far as I was concerned, completely compatible with normal physiology. And so we went and did all these tests on him and we showed that he had some unique attributes. He has a, a, a high VO2 max. So it's calculated VO2 max at his race weight because he had gained two kilos since the tour with 88 milliliters of uh, oxygen per kilogram body mass per minute. And, and that's high. But what was interesting was that most of the studies show an inverse relationship with economy. So economy is your oxygen cost per unit watt. So um, how much of the energy that you are using in your body is converted into actual energy that moves the bicycle. Mm. And so there's an inverse relationship between VO2 max and economy. And it still hasn't been understood exactly why, but people with a lower VO2 max tend to have a higher economy and vice versa. And Chris is, is one of the unusual characteristics of having a very high VO2 max and a very high economy. And that puts him in a unique category. And moreover, normally economy decreases in the heat. His economy remains unchanged, in fact, slightly improved in the heat when we put him in the heat chamber. But he was very physiologically efficient in the heat, and the Tour de France normally happens in July, and it typically happens in very hot days. And so he had a high VO2 max, a very high ability to produce high power outputs for five, ten minute durations, plus a high economy, which meant faster recovery or less utilization of the resources, and the ability to perform in the heat. And the combination of all three of those um, was one of the factors, obviously, that led to him winning uh, those four Tour de France. I think that leads us into the next question. When we talk about cycling and performance, you know, what aspects do you look at? Cycling performance, I think, if you look at, at sports in general, I mean, cycling has really evolved a lot in terms of the science that's involved in training and performance. The 80s and 90s, if you compare what's being done now to the different universes, and that ranges from everything from the equipment to the prescription of training load monitoring, nutrition, biomechanics, all of those things have evolved and they are at a very high level. I mean, biomechanics, for instance, even in 2003 when I started here, yeah, I mean, all we had was a goniometer. Now we're doing, and we had 3D kinematics, you have, we had a Vicon system here, but that was purely for research purposes. We now have 3D kinematics, really, or not really, but at a relatively low cost available to all of the teams in cycling. So you've got very high quality biomechanics assessments of, of the athletes. You combine that with other technology like saddle pressure mapping, EMG, and so forth. And you've got really a force, a pedal force vector analysis. Those are all technologies that have evolved in the last 10 to 15 years. And previously we didn't even have access to. So, so the biomechanics side is tremendously. The equipment is just I mean, if you ride an aero road bike now, comparing that to a bike from the late 90s, early 2000s, the differences are astronomical. I mean, you can do, you can save probably a minute every 20 kilometers just on the equipment alone on the flats, never mind when you're climbing in terms of the weight and the stiffness of the bike. So 
the technology there has improved. Nutrition has really advanced in, in, in leaps and bounds. And all of our riders have periodized nutrition. So they have a program that is based on their training. So the training loads are uh, accessible by our chief nutritionist, Korka Pietabarach, who then changes their macronutrient comp- uh, consumption of the menu that all the riders have. And, they, and that changes on a daily basis based on the training loads and intensities that they're doing. A very intense training session will have a very high carbohydrate prescription during the session, 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour, multiple transportable carbohydrates. So our understanding of what to consume has changed, the amounts that they can consume. And then they'll have days when they, for instance, do a fasted training session where they won't consume carbohydrate or a low-carbohydrate day. And that happens even within a stage in the Tour de France. So why would they do a fasting? To stimulate fat oxidation. Uh, so fasted training has numerous beneficial effects. Mitochondrial biogenesis, intramuscular triglyceride storage improves, and metabolism of, of fatty acids improves. So there are multiple benefits to doing fasted training session. And then the benefits to doing very high carbohydrate consumption, moderate intensity. So my colleague in the San Milan is zone two training, which is below uh, the first lactate turn point, so about one and a half to 1.75 millimolar lactate concentration, has another benefit. So there you're going through very high rates of carbohydrate oxidation and stimulating, again, mitochondrial biogenesis, enzyme pr- uh, production, and, and improving the metabolism of the rider. So we basically are able to train the riders to have very high rates of fat oxidation so they can use an unlimited source of fuel, very high rates of carbohydrate oxidation, so they don't have to use it glycolytically, and thereby improve effectively the size of the fuel tank, and then combine that with other training methods to improve peak performance, including altitude training, high-intensity interval training, and so on. We monitor the athletes, so monitoring, we're doing internal load monitoring with uh, training peaks, and actually some novel Kobe Vermeer, who's from Kent University, just finished his PhD, he's working closely with us now on monitoring techniques, his entire PhD was on training loads monitoring and novel methods. So we're doing that, we're doing external load, that's the external load metric. Internal load metrics, we're looking at nocturnal heart rate variability and resting heart rate. We do the submaximal fatigue test, which is a derivative of our Lambert submaximal cycling test, which we developed here with Rob Lambert. And we do basically four to six weeks of blood analysis at altitude training camps. We're doing every fourth day, we're doing blood analysis looking at a variety of markers to monitor training load, which is very important to, to control at altitude. And those sorts of things. So there, there are a huge number of different scientific aspects to the performance side that, that we implement and, at the bit. And how often are you guys doing, you also mentioned the saddle pressures. And so when the riders arrive at the training camp in December, which we typically have in Alicante, Spain, because of their access to good training loads, good weather, our biomechanist uh, will arrive there, and uh, David Herrera and his team, actually, a team of guys, and every rider will have their, their, their bike, both road bike and time trial bike, assessed. They'll bring heat kinematic saddle pressure mapping, and full sector analysis equipment. And then, after that, during the year, there'll be refinements, particularly for the time trial and mm-hmm. uh, riders. They'll go to the track and we'll do velodrome testing. That's where we refine the position of the bike and make sure that we get the lowest drag coefficient, which is a predicted drag coefficient, but based on the relationship between power and speed. And there we're doing things like changing gross things, dropping the handlebar by a centimeter, a centimeter and a half, changing 
skin, uh, different uh, equipment, basically, yeah. as, as well as the position. And then from there, they'll go to the wind tunnel. And in the wind tunnel, we'll do very like, specific things, We're testing different skin suits at different speeds, testing a different hand position, testing different helmets and those kinds of aspects. And that whole process is an evolution that takes place across each year and gradually refine the position of the rider to optimize that. I think Adrian mentioned on one of the previous episodes, I think it's just man and machine. It is, yeah. Which and it's, makes it so unique. It's melding the man and the machine to a single cohesive unit yeah. is the maximum performance. Yeah. Now, just jumping off from cycling, we've done some work with Dr. Smidima, who was on our previous episode. Mm. And you guys were looking at cardiac evaluation and sort of the habitual load athletes. Mm. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's a, a, it's a, a project that JP and, and I envisaged where it's, it's actually got, in the future, we'll have a number of different components for, it's for the SARP heart study. And the first part of that is where you took 50 habitual high-volume athletes, people who've done 10 comrades marathons and, and, and similar, mostly runners, but also cyclists, people who've done every single Cape Epic, for instance, and, and so forth. And each of those individuals has undergone a, the most comprehensive cardiovascular assessment that any athlete has undergone in, in research. And basically that is composed of a, a full history of clinical examination. They then undergo a resting and stress echocardiogram, and not echocardiogram, ECG, sorry, echocardiogram, but to exhaustion, so maximal ECG stress test. Then a resting echocardiogram, but using Philips device and software to map the left and right atria, so the volumes and the booster functions and strain on the left and right atria. Then each athlete undergoes a full cardiac MRI with gadolinium contrast. And using Marco Gotto's group in Bay University at Amsterdam developed a technique, the MRI sequencing, to be able to map both the atria and ventricles, and we're not only mapping scar in the atria and ventricular gadolinium enhancements of the scarring in the ventricle, but also looking at the atrial function in terms of the booster function, strain, and so forth, and volume. So, so these athletes are really being assessed cardiovascularly from top to toe, and those results are busy being written up. So, what is the hypothesis around this? Why? So we know that athletes who do those kinds of volumes are they lose some of the benefits. So if you take a couch potato and you go from doing no exercise to going to doing four, um, four exercise sessions of 45 minutes to an hour each week at a moderate intensity, you reduce your overall mortality risk and cardiovascular mortality risk by between a third and a half. So it's a substantial reduction in risk. Those athletes at the far right of the curve that exercise seven days a week, they do very high volumes of training. They have an uptick again, and the Copenhagen Heart Study showed that, and a number of other studies have subsequently also shown the same, where the mortality risk, and specifically the cardiovascular mortality risk, goes up again. So the odds ratio increases. And they don't lose all the benefits, but they lose a substantial amount of it. And previous studies have shown increased rates of atrial scarring and ventricular scarring in athletes who, and particularly athletes who have very high peak systolic blood pressures, who do particularly Ironman races, who do have very, very specific characteristics that have, of those athletes that suggest that they're very high loads on the ventricular atria has an adverse effect on them. And how that evolved over time and develops and 
how it presents is really what we're trying to understand. So we're looking at which of the athletes have those characteristics, what are unique to them, what is different about those athletes. And then what we want to do is then follow them up over a period of five and 10 years and see how they progress and whether or not they have some adverse consequences and, and which characteristics put them at risk so that we can understand the risk and then hopefully identify those athletes at an earlier point in time to, to advise them and hopefully prevent the deaths that happen in those athletes, which are preventable probably. Because some of these chains would obviously lead to a sudden cardiac arrest. That's, that's essentially the hypothesis. Yeah. So there's potentially the disruption of the normal physiological processes that happen in the ventricles, and that may result in deadly ventricular arrhythmia. But we need to obviously investigate how that happens and, and what we can do about it. Because we won't know if that's reversible or not. The changes that are... No, it may not be reversible, but it may be preventable. And then those people that do have those changes, we may be able to intervene, whether it's introducing low beta blockers or maybe that more regular screening. Mm-hmm. And at some point, in the intervention will have to see. Okay. Yeah. We're waiting for those results. Yeah. It's going to be a whole bunch of papers that are going to describe all those mm-hmm. characteristics as we go through the data. And speaking on sort of physical activity and the importance thereof, you were part of a paper now, the Hamburg Declaration, which was. I believe a multi-center, multinational paper that was written on the importance of physical activity. Yep. Could you maybe chat about the Hamburg de- Declaration itself yep. and why something like that is so important? Yeah, I mean, the, I would call it the burden of physical inactivity is progressively becoming, in our generation and generations to come, one of our biggest health problems. Um, we, we now refer to them as diseases of lifestyle, effectively, because our increasing consumption of calories and processed foods together with decreased physical activity are leading to serious health consequences in developing nations. And and those are specifically obesity, which is linked to increased incidence of hypertension, cardiovascular disease, MIs and and deaths, and and also cancer and other chronic diseases, including chronic neurological diseases and so on. So so the spectrum of disease related to our lifestyles is progressively being unmasked in terms of the, the impact that physical inactivity has. And really the cure is to get people just doing more physical activity. And so awareness and then advocacy and eventually uh, interventions on a global level, at a political level, and at a, even a, for instance, our role as a sport and exercise physician are going to become increasingly important and making sure that we proactively get our patients to be aware of the dangers of their physical activity and then to specifically start prescribing it like we would a medication. Exercise mm-hmm. is really something that you should prescribe. We know it's as beneficial as SSRIs are for depression and anxiety. We know that it can cure type 2 diabetes. We know that it prevents cancer in so many different types of cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, etc. All of those have a reduced risk with, with exercise. And so we need to get as many people as possible out of seats and into gyms or on the streets, preferably, and running and cycling and just participating in physical activity. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Turn to end off. What's next for you in 
sports and exercise medicine. Goodness, there's a lot happening at the moment. So I'm deeply involved in the moment at the moment in establishing a registrar training program, not only here at UCT, but um, I've passed that by the college to coordinate that on a nationwide level. So together with my colleagues to see how we implement that. So that's from a sport and exercise perspective. And then the rest is just continuing what we've been doing, which is doing more research in different areas and helping our patients. At a, and one of the big areas that we at UCT are going forward is to create a really community-facing sport and exercise medicine clinic and biokinetics as a part of that that's accessible to the general population and to have a greater impact on our community in terms of their health and welfare. So, so that is for the next couple of years the focus. Yeah, it's, an, it's definitely an exciting time in sports and exercise medicine, having it being accepted in 2020. March 2020. March 2020. Yes. The college was uh, formed in 2020, late 2021, and it's now fully functioning. There are a lot of processes involved there from uh, drafting a constitution to drafting the curriculum to drafting the, uh, the requirements for grandfathering, which you're currently in the process of doing, and uh, many of our other colleagues are as well, and so forth. So there have been a huge number of, uh, you know, a lot of paperwork and processes involved in that, and, and that's where we are. Now, cool. I think to end up on my side, um, obviously I mentioned that you've been a mentor of mine for a long time. You've always been a senior clinician that I could lean on. <clears throat> And I think for our listeners, specifically for those sort of coming through the master's program and getting into sports and exercise medicine, I think it's just important to always have that senior figure, that or mentor type person, specifically in our, in something like sports medicine that doesn't quite have a, like we mentioned earlier, a nice clear cut pathway. And I think it's important to always have that sort of senior person five to 10 years ahead of you that you can maybe just ask about. And I think that definitely benefited me. Obviously, as the program becomes more formalized, this will change. But again, just an important side note as we end up our podcast. And, and you are now that senior person five um, ten years ahead of <laughs> our, our new budding sports physician. So more and more of them will be directed slowly to you as for, yeah. for, you, for your guidance, for your <laughs> for your pearls of wisdom. So. Now, Turin, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's and been great. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome. <laughs>